Welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Zivna Kajimam, again. And this podcast is brought to you, among others, by our sponsor, Humble Bunny, one of the best bilingual English-Japanese web design and e-commerce implementers here in Japan. If you've got a business big or small or are working for a business that needs a better online presence, hit them up, inquisitive at humblebunny.com. Ask to speak with Nate. Tell them you heard about the company here in the podcast, and they'll sort you right out at very reasonable prices. Okay, so getting right into today's episode, and I know I promised you more Clubhouse conversations. Bear with us. We've got some real nice ones that we've recorded recently that we're going to publish in the next few weeks. But for today, I really wanted to share with you a fantastic conversation that I've had recently with an investor from Hawaii. And he's new to investing here in Japan, super savvy though, and he had so many insightful questions all written down in advance, laid out in perfect logical order. And that really impressed me personally. He's also really lovely to speak with. So we start off discussing the differences between various locations here in Japan. He's lived here uh, in Sapporo in the past, so we start off talking about the market there and how Sapporo is different to other locations as far as maintenance and vacancies go and so forth. But then we very quickly dive deeper and deeper into other locations and the advantages and disadvantages of each of these, which then naturally um, leads us to talking about portfolio structuring generally and more specifically about how to build a portfolio from the ground up. If this is your first time investing here in Japan, and a whole lot of other stuff from tenant profiles to property management companies, uh, our services, of course, some market fundamentals, pros and cons of incorporation, proactive management uh, or the lack thereof, and much, much more. So really good conversation that will bring a lot of value to many of you. So lean back, grab a cup of coffee or tea. It's a pretty long conversation, uh, but again, packed full of really useful info. So enjoy, and I shall see you again on the other side. Okay, go for it. So I've been looking over your email and you've mentioned that you've, you've lived in Sapporo or you stayed in Sapporo before? Uh, well, Sapporo is a place where I stay quite a bit. Um, we've got family and all that. My wife's from there. Um, and yes, I mean, we're there probably two to four months a year, kind of split up between two or three trips. Yep. Um, just um, from an investment perspective, I think um, uh, Pretty or myself were mentioning it's... Um, you were talking about aiming for 5% uh, net pre-tax yield and higher. Mm-hmm. Um, just with support specifically, I'd probably aim to go a bit higher than that on purchase just because maintenance and vacancy costs can be higher in Sapporo. Okay, so Sapporo, well, obviously with the cold winters and the heavy snow and everything else, there's a lot less life on the pipes and roofing and everything else. Exactly. So roofing might not be an issue if you're, um, I'm, I'm guessing, based on your budget, I'm guessing you're aiming at individual units in co-owned uh, strata blocks kind of thing? That's correct. Yeah, so roofing would be a part of uh, what the building would be paying for uh, structural repairs out of the uh, reserve fund. So that's not a huge issue, but pipes do tend to burst there more, yes. And also, um, most apartments would come with some sort of um, heavy-duty heating equipment. Yeah, I've seen a lot of it where they uh, they have a lot of the floor heating. I'm not sure what they what it's called over there, but it's uh, it's kind of like radiant heating or something like that. That has that larger unit that costs quite a bit. Yeah, so the nicer, fancier apartments would have um, floor heating. You're probably looking at cheaper ones just to get because um, the cash cows do tend to be the cheaper older units. 
Um, so they would come with sort of uh, massive oil heaters in one corner of the room. And when these go, you're looking at a couple of thousand to replace them. Sort of like a hot water boiler, I suppose. And, uh, oh, okay, okay. And makes the, sense. The other thing is that in the winter, there people don't tend to move around as much. So if you get a vacancy just prior to winter, you could be looking at a, a lot longer to repopulate it compared to other places where it's not as cold. That would be a big hit, especially, uh, you know, if going in with maybe one or two units, that would be either 50 to 100% vacancy for several months. Exactly. So if we take, let's exa- as an example, if we take um, one of the more dynamic cities like uh, Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka, um, even Nagoya to some extent, um, we'd normally not see, vac- I mean, COVID notwithstanding, because things have changed a bit in the last year and a bit, but... Um, before that, we wouldn't see a vacancy longer than two or three months, maybe tops. Whereas in Sapporo, we have had vacancies as long as six or eight months. And that makes sense to it. That just kind of, I mean, I think even in the States here as well, when you go to the colder parts of the, uh, the country, people tend not to move when it's cold or just before it gets cold or just as things are thawing out. Yeah, it's a pain in the bum to move in the snow. <laughs> I <can do. laughs> That's for sure. So, yeah, so we, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Sapporo, just um, it is a very big city. I mean, it's not rising in population, but it's fairly stable or maybe on slight decline. I think they're down to maybe 1.9 or 1.8 million last I checked. Yeah, yeah. last I've, I've seen, uh, just kind of, uh, well, with what some other business that the family does out there is uh, there's been a little bit of a downturn there. I mean, there's been some uh, downturn with you know, productions and some shifts with some other things, especially since the tsunami, there was a little bit of a downturn with the fishing and stuff. So I've seen definitely a little bit of a decline in Hokkaido on different stuff. And I know Sapporo's seen it with, uh, for sure. And obviously it's also a very touristic destination. So again, I mean, the last year has been a bit different to previous ones, but when they, uh, when there are less tourists coming into Japan, the economy there does tend to suffer a bit. So I guess you're really thinking about, um, kind of just trying to get my foot, into the door, start building something there. It almost seems like Sapporo has a few more risks to it than some of the other cities a little bit more south, kind of more down in Honshu than up north in Hokkaido. And a little bit, but it hasn't risen in value as some of the nicer places that are more popular. So that does make for higher yields and uh, uh, cheaper entries overall. Um, but I, I don't mean you were looking at one or two units, so maybe maybe something a bit more central and stable to start with and then get a bit more adventurous and go to Sapporo on your fourth or fifth unit kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, that, that or just kind of hearing it like that and uh, having a little bit more of, a, of, the, of the explanation kind of in the theory behind it. Not really the theory, more of your experience in doing it for so long. Kind of was a little bit heavier than just kind of throwing a few things up and seeing some prices and saying, ah, well, this yield looks good, whatever that you get from, you know, different uh, internet posts and different stuff. It has a different perspective to it as far as thinking about replacement costs and things like that. In fact, at my father-in-law's house, we recently did a, uh, a replacement of some of the some of the water. Similar, yeah, similar incident. My uh, brother-in-law left, left the water off and had a pipe freeze, and so that kind of threw a new perspective onto things. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, you, said, you said that you like Sapporo and um, you're familiar with it, so there's, there is that. But if you're buying uh, tenanted properties, which is usually what most of our clients aim for, unless they've got a, some unique strategy in mind, but most people would like to buy um, tenanted, so they're buying straight into income as opposed to expenses and vacancy. 
And if you're buying tenanted in Japan, you can't really enter a property. There's no inspections, um, no periodical inspections, and not even on ownership change. Um, so the fact, I mean, the fact that you know and like the city and might be visiting it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be able to do much except just kind of walk around the building and nod your head a lot, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, that's a big difference then from, you know, kind of here in the States where you can have somebody come in and do an inspection, even if it is rented, all you got to do is get a little permission, whereas there you can't actually you can. enter a unit or do anything. That, that puts a bit of a different perspective on it, um, something that I hadn't really considered. Yeah, not unless the tenant asks you to come and uh, do something. I mean, you can definitely send them a letter and tell them that you want to inspect the unit, but Japanese being Japanese, they might freak out and just move out. I wouldn't want that. I mean, you're no, nobody does yeah. that here. That's the only thing. Hey, you don't want to, you don't want to rock the boat in Japan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think then, you know, I was kind of listening to the episode that you guys had about what you do and what you don't do and, and I think that gave a little bit more of a clear vision of, 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 of what it is that Nippon Trading does and what you and your staff do there. And it's, it's actually a huge service. I mean, even when I was thinking that, okay, I got to have somebody in the country that can, you know, accept my mail, you know, get the stuff in the post, can go down to the konbini and actually pay my bills if I pay them and everything else. But I was listening to that episode and it sounds like that's something that you guys offer is part of the fee or even as an added fee, whatever it is in your, in your service. I'm not sure about the billing portion of it 100%, but it seems like you guys are very diverse in what you offer. And well, I mean, we tried to bridge the gap. Japan being Japan, um, it just became very apparent to us soon after we started working that um, you can't just have your customers go directly into contact with the property manager and they'll be able to help them with everything because they can't. Um, for one thing, I mean, it could be feasible for you because your wife is Japanese. She might be able to handle the ongoing communication, but still property managers here are just not going to be able to wrap their head around the concept of sending funds overseas or um, receiving your post for you or that sort of thing. And so for us, it just if we wanted to go into business, and that's almost a decade ago now, it was just the only way that we could do it for people. There are some more foreigner-inclined um agencies but they're mainly there's maybe a 10 or 12 of them in tokyo maybe a handful in osaka one or two in fukuoka that's about it kind of thing um so you could conceptually if you're investing in those places work directly with them um but the other thing is that our customers tend to like the single point of contact whereas they don't have to be in touch with the building management company and with the property manager and with the um, with the real estate broker when they do the sale and with the tax department, that sort of thing. So it does come in handy for them. And uh, on purchase too, I mean, we're an added layer of cost, but we do compensate or I hope beyond compensate for that um, just by, you know, helping you just doing what we're doing now, just chatting about investment strategy and maybe saving you from a couple of costly mistakes. And um, also we're able to know when a property should be negotiable and find the good reasons to reduce the price if that is possible it's not always possible and on the management side we're pretty affordable we charge um three two two or three percent of the gross rental income that's on top of the property managers uh which is usually five percent okay it's, it's, it's actually a little bit less than what i was thinking i was thinking for this kind of a service i'd be paying probably 
probably five to eight percent for a property manager, and then about the same on top of that. So you're saying we're looking at maybe eight to ten percent at the very top end. Uh, well, it depends on how much the uh, property you paid for cost and what the rental uh, income is, because we do have a minimum cap of uh, one hour of work per month, which is uh, for us about thirty dollars or three thousand yen, so slightly less than thirty dollars um, is our minimum. Um, if your rental income per month is going to be a thousand dollars, then it'll just be two or three percent. But if it's going to be something like uh, I don't know, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred bucks, then there is a minimum of thirty from us. Okay, well, I mean that makes sense. You know, everybody gotta has to pay their own overhead and, and take care of their expenses and stuff like that. I mean, with the current conditions, no one can fly over to go take care of my uh, expenses or to do business for myself. You know. What What do you do, by the way? Uh, well, actually, I'm in the middle of transition. I used to be a hotel manager. Uh, I left that to go work for the airlines, and well, we are our uh, current pandemic situation kind of killed the airline uh, career as it got started. So I'm working for the state of Hawaii right now as an auditor. Okay. So it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's been an interesting transition. You know, uh, I had a business started, and COVID kind of destroyed that with the loss of all of our tourist business in Hawaii. So it's been an interesting year in, in a smidgen. But you're still gainfully employed? I mean, the, the 2020 hasn't killed you? Of course not. You got to find opportunity, everything. It's kind of <laughs> what I'm, the feeling that I get from you guys, too. is like, hey, there's something missing. Let's feel it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I don't, um, I don't feel comfortable saying this, especially with all of our customers, um, especially my friends in, uh, not customers, or my friends in the uh, hospitality or the food and beverage industries are unfortunately going out of business left, right, and center. And it's it's, it's- it's been a challenge for a lot of them. I have a friend of mine in Tokyo who uh, lost his business. He had a nice little wine bar and stuff that he had for about four years. Now it's gone. That's horrible. Mm. But yeah, I, mean, I was, was going to say our customers are mainly investors. We tend to be opportunistic bastards. So for them, it's been a <laughs> very good year, actually. They've been buying left, right, and center. As they say, cash is king. You put cash on the side. It's never for a rainy day. It's for opportunity. Exactly. Oh, okay. So, I mean, that, that, so monthly minimum one hour, of course, if it goes over, it's over, and you pay whatever the hour, you know, whatever the, uh, the fees are on that. Um, well, it's, it's, um, it's 3% uh, unless the uh, property you've purchased is over 20 million yen, in which case it goes down to 2%. Uh, but it's kept at a minimum of one hour, which is $30. So, that usually works out to be $30 up until. I think seven hundred dollars rental income or what, and it just becomes three percent again. Now, what was the? Um, sorry, what was that? Up to what price, and then it goes down. Well, it it doesn't. So well, not really goes down, but it, it's something like it's a it's a pro not really prorated, but it's it's. Let, let me open with it. A large, I'll make it easier pro- for you with the calculator. Okay. So we charge basically we charge three percent on management, which are three percent of the gross rental income. Percent of gross. Yep. So if you're making a thousand bucks per month, we charge um, thirty dollars. Okay. And that's our minimum as well. So below that, it'll still be thirty dollars. And then uh, it's going to be three percent, unless the property you've purchased cost you uh, twenty million yen or over. So let's say you bought a single property that's um, say two hundred thousand bucks. And so on that. Um, that's when we reduce our management fee to 2% a month because for a $200,000 property, you're likely going to be making um, at a minimum uh, something like uh, 
10,000 per month, roughly. Sorry, am I, am I calculating this right? That doesn't sound right at all. Hang on. Uh, 20,000, uh, sorry, annually, yeah. So you're gonna be making about 10,000 bucks annually, which monthly average. So when you hit about um, $800, it goes down to 2%. Okay, okay. So it, it pays to uh, go up into a larger property. Well, to a, I'd love to say that because we would make more money that way. But to be fair, the cheaper, smaller, older properties do tend to generate higher cash flow. So we'll just go with your budget and with what you're comfortable, uh, what we, what you're comfortable spending. And then we would probably advise to diversify if you can. So even if your whole budget is two hundred thousand bucks, it's probably not a bad idea to split that into two or three properties if you can, just to. Like you mentioned, if a single tenant moves out, you don't want to lose 100% of your income stream. And I know when I was listening to one of the other episodes, you're talking about um, looking at when it's advisable to actually incorporate versus holding on to it as like an owner, uh, well, as a sole owner, um, with kind of pros and cons of the different fees, the different uh, processes that go into actually being incorporated or having a Japan office of your company there versus just owning it as a sole owner or yeah. as a private owner. So the main um, advantage to corporate ownership is the fact that corporate income is, um, is uh, fixed. It's 20, well, it's with all the other taxes, it's worth it to be something like 25 to 30%. Whereas if you own and if you own properties as an individual, the tax uh, goes up beyond that. So it can go as high as forty percent if you've got a big portfolio. But that wouldn't come into play um, before you're making an annual income of say twenty, thirty thousand bucks. And oh, well, so you gotta have a larger portfolio for, before it really starts to impact you. Yes, and also you need to bear in mind that if you've got a corporate structure, your accounting fees are much higher. So you're going to be paying at least two to three thousand dollars a year in. Uh, uh, accounting fees so it doesn't really make sense for portfolios that are smaller than let's say 700 800,000 uh, in asset value okay um, and then as far as you know some of the legal protections and stuff like that and you're not an attorney you can't really give um, a lot of legal advice but in Japan, I know in the U.S., um, being structured as like an LLC or an S-Corp, C-Corp kind of a thing offers you a little bit of liability protection as the individual if there was something to go wrong with your asset. Is Japan similar to, in that aspect or not really? Um, it's not really a factor to consider here just because you don't get sued in Japan. People avoid courts like the play here. They would, I mean, tenant would very, very, you'd have to do something really bad for a tenant to try and take your court. Okay, so then that's that's really something that's kind of on the back of the mind, but not really forefront versus here in the United States where everybody's so happy and no, they're, they're, turns on speed dial. No, I mean, even from our end, we've never had to take a tenant to court yet, uh, let alone be sued by a tenant. Um, okay. I mean, if your company is going to be doing other things in Japan, that might be something to consider. You might get into a business dispute with someone, but not on the straightforward property ownership and tenancies, no. Okay. 
And you've you've mentioned the budget of maximum two hundred and fifty thousand from memory. So, I yeah, that's what I was looking at. I was trying to salvage selling off the remainder of my company, but that is not looking like it's going to happen with further shutdowns, restrictions, and other stuff that's going on right now. So. Probably going to look like probably in the lower end, fifty to sixty, maybe seventy thousand, or realistically, the way things are going right now. Well, then you definitely don't want a corporate structure for that because if you're making, if you're purchasing something for seventy thousand, let's say, um, let's say you're making even seven percent of that in annual income, um, that's I mean, half of your income would go to accounting fees, which is ridiculous. So we don't want that. Okay, you know, it makes sense to I me mean, with with. With the low risk of litigations there, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to pay such the higher fees and give up, you know, half or more of your, of your actual cash flow just to cover the accounting fees. No, it doesn't make sense. I mean, there are tax benefits and stuff, but not at the level where that's going to make a, a difference to you. So definitely not. And then as far as um, keeping the money in the country, I mean, I know right now it'd be nice to see some of that cash flow coming into my pocket thinking long term I would almost prefer to keep a good portion of the money if not you know whatever's left over in a bank account in something in Japan to have it already just sitting there as yen you know as opportunity other opportunities come up is that something that's feasible or is that not really um, it's feasible in the sense that we can hold it for you and provide you with an annual statement and you can let us know when you want to remit funds back home. And in any case, I wouldn't advise to do that on a monthly basis because um, international bank charges coming out of Japan are about 100 uh, bucks per pop. So you don't want to withdraw funds before they've reached a good few thousand bucks. Um, but you cannot open a bank account under your name as a non-resident, unfortunately. So the best that we can do, which is what we do for all of our non-resident clients, is just... Um, collect your funds, pay your uh, bills, and then just give you an annual statement. And if you need money in a hurry and you want us to give you an approximation mid-year or something, just let us know and we'll roughly estimate how much you should have and we'll remit to you based on that. And then if we if we overshot, then we can just collect it from your rental income towards the end of the year. Okay, well, that sounds, good. That sounds actually really flexible. And then um, I guess with holding all of that and growing it, once the portfolio gets to a size where it's feasible to incorporate, then, of course, the company could own it, open its own accounts, everything else, because it becomes its own entity in Japan. And at that point, we could move funds into the company's accounts. Or how would, or more or less, how would that be recommended about going? I mean, I know we're talking start point, and I'm talking like a couple of years down the road or so, just trying to get an idea. Well, bank policies here tend to be pretty strict, and they have gone even stricter since the end of uh, 2019 or so. I think the, um, according to one of the bigger accountants that we work with, tells us um, the major uh, CEOs of most of the banks attended some global conference on money laundering, and they've all got the recommendations to limit um, the possibility for foreign entities to open accounts in Japan. So at the moment, if you hire one of the top tier accountants and for that you'll be paying them something like six or seven thousand bucks a year, they could assist you with opening a bank account provided that you've got a local uh, company representative um, supposedly hired by you and working here, which is a service that we can provide or accountants can provide as well. Um, but then again, there are more and more fees involved in that. So unless you've got residency, but you're saying your wife has residency in Japan, right? 
Uh, well, she's a Japanese citizen. I mean, we just haven't been, well, she hasn't lived in Japan since, I think, when we were there for quite a while. 2007 through 2008, she was there for about a year and a half-ish. I was there for about six months, and uh, that was the last time that she was like, a resident physically in the country for an extended period of time. Well, then you've always got the option of either her opening a bank account or her setting up a company and opening a company bank account if she's a resident, right? Or if she's a citizen. It would be a lot easier for you than some of our other customers. It almost sounds like it would be easier if I would just uh, let you guys take care of a good portion of it. <laughs> and that's what we do with most people, but I think we're, we're probably talking about when your portfolio grows to the point where it actually becomes a factor to consider. Uh, we're not there yet. It's something that would be possible in the future if your wife's a citizen. Okay. Um, or, or if you're a resident, for that matter. Yeah, If you want to take a, a year or two just to live here, apply for residency, and try to uh, steer towards permanency, which you should be able to get fairly... Uh, fairly quickly and easily, I hope, if you're working here. And then that becomes an option for you individually as well. Okay. And then, again, um, it just it sounds like you have clients who are basically holding properties all across the country. So really, logistics of being in different portions of the country is not really an issue with Nippon Trading. We work with third parties. We're not actually managing the properties ourselves. So we work with agents all over the country and with property managers all over the country. So we, we don't really physically care where we are or where the property is. We'll work with local professionals in that city. And if at you know, any point they don't seem to be living up to expectations, we'll just replace them with another one. Okay. So, okay. I think I actually got a full understanding now of what it is that Equine Trading does. It's a full proxy service working to help manage and, and uh, you know, different properties and different aspects of owning the property in Japan, correct? Buy, manage, and sell. Uh, we can also handle developments if you're buying land and you want to build something on it. Um, and other third parties, like, for example, some people um, want to invest in parking lots. So we would be facilitating services of a parking lot management company. Or some people have a holiday apartment that they want to lease out when they're not here, so we would hire the services of a short-term stay operator. So anything to do with real estate, we act as your proxy, yes. Okay. And um, I know you were talking about, or if I remember correctly, I was reading in one of the emails where we were talking about the uh, market getting a little bit softer now down south in like, Tokyo or uh, some of the outer more satellite cities of it, like uh Yokohama or... Well, yeah, so to Tokyo, Tokyo, Osaka, Nagoya, and the uh, major cities around... I mean, obviously, the smaller cities around there, too, but they might not be as attractive. So if we're looking around Tokyo, Yokohama, Kawasaki, Shiba, um, Saitama are all a lot softer. Around Osaka, Kobe is also a lot softer. Um, around Nagoya, there's not that much, but Nagoya itself has also gone a lot softer. It hasn't trickled down as much to other parts of the country, so... Here in Fukuoka, which is another very popular destination, we're not feeling it as much. Um, Sapporo has already been down. I guess they don't have much to drop, so hasn't haven't felt it that much in Sapporo as well. Um, we haven't seen good deals come out of Kyoto for a while, but I'm guessing Kyoto would also be softer because they took a major hit without the tourists. Um, other than that, not so much, but... If you if you believe the projections of uh, some of the bigger macro players, then there should be a lot of distressed assets hitting the market towards the middle of this year, um, which might trickle down to the cheaper properties as well. I'm just uh, not having a crystal ball. I don't know. 
don't think anybody can predict the future of any of this stuff. No, but we have we have definitely had uh, customers buying in Tokyo and Osaka, which they haven't done for the last five, six years, just because deals were not that attractive. And they are a little bit more attractive now. So in some cases, we've been able to reduce prices by 10, 15, 20 percent. So it is a good market to hit. But still, Tokyo and Osaka being Tokyo and Osaka, you're not going to get anything beyond maybe 6 percent, maybe 7, 6.5, 7 percent if it's Yokohama or Kobe. Um, in Sapporo, Fukuoka, Nagoya, um, we can definitely get to seven, seven and a half, Nagoya maybe even eight. And satellite cities, maybe half a percent even higher than that. Well, that sounds better than what I was thinking at the five, around the five percent-ish. So, I mean, that's, that's a little bit higher than what I was uh, kind of assuming just, I guess, with most of my stuff that I've been seeing or, well, but that's, no, in net, my local area, which is- that's net before tax. So once you factor in, um, you're probably not going to have much income tax if you're only going to own one or two properties. But um, once you factor in property tax, vacancies, maintenance, stuff that we just can't estimate in advance, only when we're closer to settlement. So maybe take that down a notch, maybe half a percent, one percent lower. That still sounds better than the local market here in Hawaii. <laughs> Hawaii, definitely. Hawaii is crazy. But the oh U.S. has got place- quite a few nice places, I think. Oh, they got some nice places, but uh, it's—I don't know—it's not really my my cup of tea. Not really where I want to be. The tenant um, base is a lot rougher around the edges than Japan, isn't it? Ah, uh, quite a bit. Mm. Oh, okay, so then I guess kind of focusing more down, um, you know, being able to have this conversation and kind of clear up some of the uh, muck in my brain. It does make sense to come south, come out of Sapporo, you know, for a while till I can build up at least a somewhat moderate. Um, property based before moving into a little bit more expensive maintenance, kind of slightly riskier market with the extended vacancies and stuff like that around the winter time. I'd say so, so, yeah. Maybe 15-20% of your portfolio can be in more adventurous location, but to play it safe, I'd have at least 70% of it uh, in more stable locations. Um, and I guess, you know, looking at the smaller budget like that, we'd be looking at something like a 1K, maybe 1LK or something like that. Yeah, the smaller the city, the bigger the properties will be able to get for the same price. And they'll also be yielding, I mean, if you're looking at um, big metropolitan centers, like again, Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka, um, probably your 1R, 1K, maybe 1DK would be the cash cows. Beyond that, as the space grows, the yield tends to drop because the purchase price goes up a lot more sharply. Um, If you're looking at satellite cities, maybe up to 1LDK. Sapporo, actually, we can get two, even three LDK that'll still generate high yield. Um, I'm guessing because they've got, you know, more room to build there. So they tend to build a little bit bigger. Uh, and you're looking at um, something between 1990, we probably wouldn't advise to buy older than that, to maybe 2000, 2005. Okay, and that, that keeps you well within the, uh, the newer regulations, even though they're not that new for the uh, earthquake codes and all that fun stuff. That's post-1981 for the concrete blocks. But the other legislation that we're concerned about now is um, they're going to put in some new rules about buildings that are older than 40 years old should be um, going through more compliance and apply for a certificate. The, the details are still a bit vague, 
but that's supposed to come in next year. So until we know exactly what that legislation includes, we probably wouldn't advise to buy anything that's uh, older than 30 years or 32, three years at the time of purchase. And then for the price that you've mentioned, um, that would get you maybe one apartment in Yokohama or Kawasaki or Kobe, maybe Tokyo, Osaka if we're lucky, or two apartments in any of the other locations. So Fukuoka, Nagoya, Kumamoto, um, Saitama, maybe two apartments for that price. Okay, so it so actually seems like there is a little bit more options than what I thought. Um, with that budget, um, I guess it's more of looking at which one of the cities has the better, the better projections on it. And yeah, but I mean that's what, the, what the reason it's up. the reason it's cheaper there is because prices obviously haven't gone up that much as as not as much as they've gone up in Tokyo and Osaka. So that that's the um, that's the other side of that coin is that you've got less capital growth potential in those places, whereas Tokyo and Osaka. I mean, it's debatable because they have reached. Um, quite similar prices to where they were uh, pre-bubble, before the 1990s bubble burst. So whether they've got a lot of room to grow that beyond that is debatable. Um, if you're looking for the best balance, I guess, between capital growth potential, if and when that happens in Japan, and cash flow, I'd probably go for Nagoya and Fukuoka. They're both poised to grow, and they've still got a lot more room to grow compared to uh, Tokyo and Osaka. It's good to know Nagoya, Fukuoka have seem to be the more balanced and still growing or have room for growth. Yeah, so yield would be a bit lower than, for example, the satellite cities like Saitama, Kumamoto, uh, the prefectural capitals. Um, yield would be a bit lower um, on purchase, at least if you're buying in relatively central locations. But you would have more potential for growth and you would have... Um, a bigger tenant base or at least a more dynamic tenant base whereas you wouldn't have to wait as long uh, to repopulate the property compared to smaller cities. Okay. Um, well, that's a huge thing right there. I mean, vacancy is one of the, I think, hardest things to deal with in real estate. Yep. I mean, what's the point of owning a property if it's not tenanted, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Um... Just, my head's spinning there's like so many things I want to ask but at the same time it's I, I guess more how do you or what would you recommend as far as trying to narrow it down we've you know we've mentioned several different cities different uh, a few different property sizes I mean I, I think property sizes might be something that's more dictated based on the deals that are available but narrowing it down to to cities, is there any recommendations that you have on that? Or again, is that just based on the deals that come up and what looks good? Um, I guess it depends mainly. I, I wouldn't take property size as a factor because there are advantages to smaller properties as well. For one, um, Japanese don't tend to get married much. So, um, you know, providing properties for singles or maybe couples without a child to live in um, probably gives you a wider tenant base. And the other thing is that smaller properties cost less to renovate and repair once they become vacant. So if you're looking at a, if you're looking at an average of let's say eight hundred to a thousand dollars in renovations per year of tenancy kind of thing, 
um, on the singles and one decays, if you're going beyond that, maybe not quite double, but you would be looking at 20, 30, 50% more for renovations. So there are advantages to owning smaller properties. Um, I guess it's a matter of how focused you are on cash flow versus potential growth and tenant base. Um, if you're looking for the highest possible cash flow, I'd probably go for some of the smaller or medium-sized cities. So of the places that I've mentioned, uh, maybe Kumamoto, Kawasaki, if we're lucky, um, Chiba City, Saitama. Um, but if you're okay with slightly lower yield in exchange for a better city profile, then I would definitely go for Fukuoka, Nagoya, uh, Kyoto, if we can get anything there, Kobe, and Yokohama. Um, and I'm putting Tokyo and Osaka aside just because deals are rarer there, but if we find a good deal there, then that's obviously a good place to be in. So what's your main, do you have any other investments? Do you have, a, um, I don't know, an equity portfolio or real estate in other countries or, or cash deposits? What's the rest of your savings looking like? Uh, well, destroyed at the moment. Um, Join the club. I was, <laughs> I was, uh, well, I, to make a life choice many years ago, I got myself written out of a will where I lost Oh, probably close to about a million acres in New Mexico of, of forest and farmland. Holy um, cow. Yeah, that was, a, that was a horrible mistake, but, well, not really a mistake. It was, it was well worth it. Um, but my portfolio right now is sitting with no other real estate investments. I have in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, probably sitting about thirty to 40000 sitting in there. Is that generating just dividends, or is it generating any growth? What is it doing? Uh, some of them are in REITs, which are paying dividends some of them are in other stock options uh, other stocks that do pay dividends but most of my stocks right now at the moment since probably about march may um you know got a lot of notices that due to the heavy losses due to covid they will not be uh issuing dividends till they can recover so further notice okay <laughs> yeah so it's, it's it's definitely started to dry up as far as what they were what they were producing um as far as real estate outside in other countries I don't own any real estate at all. Um, so we're looking mainly for cash flow now, is that right? I'm looking for cash flow, but I think the vision for me um, is to slowly start to grow the portfolio. I mean, I, I'm more concerned on how I can grow my portfolio because, I mean, there's a, with a full-time job with what I'm doing now and kind of a few things that I'm dabbling in trying to get some consulting with. I, I'm not too concerned about my current income. I'm more concerned about how I can start to grow some cash flow and start to grow a reserve in the business to try and go ahead and buy the next property, build up the next property. Um, you know, the goal is to eventually get to where there's enough cash flow to move into possibly a development or a purchase of something that's nearly vacant or, you know, just because it's old and nobody wants to buy it or people aren't really moving in on it and go ahead and do like a teardown and rebuild. But that's looking 5, 10, 15 years down the road to start getting into larger things. And that's that's my long-term projection on it is to grow grow the portfolio to, to you know, decent size, I guess. Okay. Well, I mean, putting development aside, because if you're going to be owning individual units um, in Stratobox, you're not going to be able to tear anything down or rebuild it. So if we're just looking to build a reserve and we're not obsessed with um, monthly returns, yield-wise, I mean, percentage-wise, um, 
I would probably go for um, maybe start with Fukuoka Yokohama maybe Kobe if we find something attractive there um, those would probably tick the uh, boxes as far as balance goes and once that looks like it's a stable baseline and you're generating reasonable income that you can depend on every month then maybe you can try to increase cash flow with some of the uh, satellite cities or Sapporo or some of the uh, more adventurous locations um, just because I mean Fukuoka, Nagoya, Kobe have got the best, best um, growth prospects without sacrificing too much of the yield Whereas with the rest of them, I wouldn't say, I mean, they're good cash flow plays, but I wouldn't say that they've got much growth potential. So maybe start with Fukuoka, Nagoya, Kobe, I would, if I'm going to pinpoint two or three locations, and, and Yokohama, sorry, and uh, get one or two units there, depending on how attractive the deals are that we find for you. And then after one, two, three years, once you've built up uh, a few reserves, maybe buy something in a more speculative location kind of thing. Does that, does that make sense at all? Or? Yeah, that does make sense. I mean, it sounds like, you know, get into something that has the potential for growth, but also has enough of a potential tenant base to mitigate um, vacancies as much as possible while building that uh, opportunity fund when something does come up, maybe a little more uh, exotic location where you can grab something that might have a higher yield. Exactly. Uh, and that's also why I'm thinking maybe... Fukuoka and Nagoya rather than Yokohama and Kobe, just because your budget in Yokohama and Kobe might be one unit as opposed to Fukuoka and Nagoya where it could be two. And that just gives you a bit more diversity um, and risk mitigation. Okay. Uh, I guess just kind of trying to paint a picture of what our relationship would look like uh, moving forward if we we're going to jump into something. Obviously, we'd have to fill out the contracts, agreements, and all that fun stuff. Uh, yeah, so the engagement process is exactly that. So we need two documents from you um, to be signed and witnessed. One's a contract of services and the other's authority to act on your behalf here in Japan. And then following that for your first purchase, we do need your um, purchase fee paid in advance. And that's going to be based on the budget that you think you're going to be purchasing in. And we can, we can make it just um, based on the first property. We don't have to make it uh, on the two of them. So we'll go for the uh, lowest possible purchase fee, but that does have to be paid in advance for the first purchase, and then we'll credit or debt you after settlement, depending on what the actual purchase price is. And moving forward to the second property, we can just charge you on settlement. Okay, so then... Um... So that's all, we haven't discussed the purchase fees. That's um, the budget. <laughs> on the budget that you're describing, that's... Um, We'll go with the lower end of the budget, so that's going to be 5%. There's, again, a minimum of uh, 250,000 yen, so that's based on 5% of a 5 million yen property. Okay. Um, if we end up getting a single property instead of two of them, then that's going to go down to 4%, and again, we'll credit our debit on settlement. And then, of course, um, you know, with everything else that there is in the world of real estate, there's always the different fees going on with, with closing. You gotta have your attorney's fees and everything else uh, for everyone who needs to. Yeah. So you you see that. And look at anything. Yeah. So you'll see that in the deal analysis samples, uh, pretty that you've been in touch with, will be sending you potential properties to look at, and they'll be in Excel sheet format or spreadsheet format. 
then that will also detail the closing costs. And for this budget, you're looking at somewhere between 15 to 20%. So we estimate, uh, we don't know the exact costs before we see the uh, property tax and evaluation because the legal fees um, and the purchase tax are based on that. So we estimate a worst case scenario of 20% costs. And then you see what the yield works up to be with that worst case estimate. And then they'll only improve as we near settlement. So you're probably going to be paying in reality something like 17, 18%, unless the property is very cheap, in which case it would be closer to 20. Um, but we'll estimate 20% 20, uh, 20 purchase costs just to be on the safe side when we send you deal analysis. Okay, and then I guess moving into deals and things like that, knowing that most of it's, well, all of it for me is pretty much going to be sight unseen, but even if I was in the country, you really can't look at what you're, what you're buying other than kind of doing a drive-by and saying, oh, hey, that's a nice building. No, not, unless you, uh, not unless you buy vacant. You, we can always buy vacant, in which case we will have an interior condition report and uh, pictures. But then you're buying into building fees <sighs> monthly God. rather than income, right? Correct. Um, with that, buying into something that is tenanted, I know the Japanese tend to stay in place for quite a while. Um, I guess moving into a new property, how... How spooked are they when their units sell? Um, we've had out of, I don't know, about 250 properties that we facilitated. We did have uh, one, I think, maybe two tenants that got spooked and moved out. But it's quite rare because usually all it involves is... Um, the new property manager uh, sending them a letter to say from next month, please deposit into this account and that's it, right? Well, that's, that's actually very smooth compared to the States, or at least here in Hawaii. Yeah. Like, yeah you, have to, you have to make any changes to their life kind of thing when you take over ownership? Uh, not really. We got to let them come in, take a look at all your stuff, um, and then the... New owners do have the option to break your lease, have you move out if they want to occupy or renovate. No, none of that. So it's it's always one of those uh, those things here in Hawaii when people hear that their units being bought, sold is uh, okay. Are you going to force me to move out? Can I stay? That doesn't How happen here. Go? It doesn't happen for two reasons. One is that there's a very strong tenant protection in law, and the other thing is that those properties that you're looking at. Um, they're very strictly classified as investment properties, just in the sense that somebody buying them would never want to live in them and somebody living in them would never be able to afford to buy them. So those smaller, older cash cows are always going to be purchased as investment properties and the new landlord has no interest whatsoever in kicking a tenant out. So that's, that's never an issue. And because there's no inspections, um, there's nothing that really disturbing their um, flow aside from the fact that they got a new phone number to call in case something breaks down and they got a new bank account that they need to deposit rent into. That's it from their perspective. So we haven't had anybody, uh, no, no, I don't want to say anybody, we did have one or two cases, but not more than that uh, where tenants have uh, freaked out. And also don't forget that moving costs are very expensive in Japan, so they're not going to be looking forward to moving if they can avoid it. Oh, that's, uh, that's a big concern off, <laughs> off my head. Yeah, but I mean, look, on the uh, the downside of that is if you've got a tenant who's been in place, say, eight or ten years, which is not rare in Japan, um, obviously it's a thing because they're most likely going to be staying in place for another eight or ten years, but 
um, the downside of that is that, especially if it's a single male elderly gentleman, they do tend to um, leave the windows closed and they smoke a lot and they are, you are going to be looking at a, a fairly substantial uh, renovation bill when they do move out. So there are some advantages to having a property with a young person in it who's just moved in two years ago just because you know what the interior is like. Okay. Um, so it sounds like the demographic kind of pays a little well, plays quite a bit into what you're looking at when you're looking at the uh, the cost of when they move out and renovations and things like that. Yes. I, ideally, we'd love to see... Um, a single lady in her 40s or late 30s, because that means, not nice to say, and I wish it wasn't that way, but that means she's probably not going to get married or be promoted much, Japan being Japan. And they do, tend to, uh, they do tend to take care of the properties a lot better than the males. Okay. Oh, speaking of which, um, I know here in Hawaii, one of the trends is... Um, coin laundry what i've noticed though is a lot of tenants now have started to go away from coin laundry units and wanting laundry or laundry hookups in their units is that advantageous in japan or not really it is advantageous but it's not a huge um consideration for us because it's quite cheap to install so if and when a tenant moves out and the property doesn't have that the cost of installing it would be usually about 800 or a thousand dollars so it's not a huge expense. Um, it could be problematic if the property is extra, extra small. So central Tokyo, central Osaka, uh, even central Fukuoka, you'd sometimes have a property that's only 12 or 13 square meters, which is really only space for a futon, and that's about it, right? Um, right. In those properties, it could be more challenging. You might have to put it on the balcony, in which case you'd have to ask, um, uh, you have to get approval from uh, building management. But in most properties, you're looking at something like uh, if and when a tenant moves out, part of the renovation, we'd probably advise to install one of these, and that's about 800 bucks usually. Okay, would we, um, with the installation, just for clarification, would we be looking to install just the hookups, or would we actually be putting in, let's say, a machine? Normally, just the hookup. If the market is particularly um, challenging for some reason, let's say there's a lot of new developments in the area, and... Uh, plenty of vacancies for any reason or rental prices have been pushed down as a result of anything, then we might advise to uh, slightly furnish the pace. So get like a mini fridge, a laundry machine, microwave oven, um, in which case you're probably looking at another $600 sort of thing. If you want to make it a really nice interior, including like a standing lamp and a desk or something of that sort, maybe a thousand TV, so oh. forth. But it's again, it's this is not anything that would break the bank. We'd be a lot more concerned, um, again, if there's been a single male tenant in there for 20 odd years, when they move out, you might have to change the bathroom, which could be 10,000 bucks. So we're a lot more concerned with that than we are with the slight furnishing or a laundry bay. Which makes sense. <laughs> in the yeah. bathroom, that's a lot of work to go into that. Yeah. Okay. Um... I mean, I guess, you know, everything else would be typical, um, what you're looking for, whether it's one of the other cities or the larger city, you want something that's, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes max away from any other rail stations. and Exactly. We'd stick to 10 minutes, unless it's a really big central station, in which case 15 minutes is okay. Like if you've got a property in Tokyo that's a 15-minute walk to Shinjuku or Shibuya station, that's okay. But otherwise, yeah, 10 minutes, maybe 11, 12 would be max. 
And then are we looking at any other factors in the neighborhood? You know, I mean, Kombini or, you know, stuff like that close to the property. It doesn't really matter. Um, there are some attractive factors. I mean, the singles apartments, just because a lot of the population here is, is elderly, uh, proximity to a hospital is not a bad thing to have. Uh, proximity to university is not a bad thing to have. You'd always get some students who'd be interested. I mean, there are shorter tenancies overall, but they, there are quite a few of them available at any time. Um, police station is good for single females. Uh, single females also would prefer to avoid ground floor units just because, you know, people can peek in from the street kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um... If there is no laundry bay in the room, then having a building with a laundromat on the ground floor is attractive, especially, again, for single females. And they also like to have a secure sort of keypad entry to the building lobby, which is something okay, that you so, get. A separate so toilet and bath is quite popular. Anything built uh, post-1990 would usually have a separate toilet and bathroom, which is a, a very, uh, very nice feature for them. The bane of my existence in Hawaii is all together. <laughs> well, they're big enough to allow them to be all together, right? Here, it's not like well, that. <laughs> well, I mean, it is, but it's still there's enough space to put them separate so I can have, you know, the nice wet shower room with no food. Yeah. I guess I get spoiled. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 you're right. But it, it is an attractive feature. And then there's bonuses, right? Like if it's... Um, Top floor unit, obviously in a building with an elevator, that's very popular. Corner units are very popular because they got two directions. Um, south or east or southeast facing balconies are very popular. Um, but those are all kind of icing on the cake. I mean, if we get that, we're probably going to be having uh, shorter vacancies overall. But the main rule of thumb is, uh, yes, 10 minutes walk to a station um, and some sort of public facility. So convenience store, supermarket, hospital... Um, that kind of thing. If you're near the Kuyakshon, near the local uh, city ward office, that's quite attractive as well. Um, but yeah, beyond beyond the station location, well, I mean, central locations obviously have more potential capital growth, but even suburban locations, as long as they're close enough to a station, would always have a tenant base, unless it's a really sort of dying out town. Does it make a major difference whether it's the subway or just the, st the train? It depends on the city. Some cities don't have subways. They only have the train, so there's not much of a choice. It is very true. <laughs> uh, some cities, like Fukuoka City, for example, has both, and the subway does come in a lot faster, and it is um, it does get to more locations in the city, and it's also a bit cheaper. So in a city which has both, usually... No, I don't want to say usually, because in Tokyo, for example, JR is as popular as the subway, if not more. Um, so it's really a case-by-case -case thing. And some cities, sure. some cities don't even have train or subway, like Kumamoto City, for example, which is very popular with investors, uh, only has trams. Or it does have a train, but the train only runs through the center of the city. Um, so in some places, a tram station is good enough. Now that that's that's an interesting concept I never even thought about. <laughs> Sapporo as well. Next you got the, the tram in Sapporo too, right? Oh, they got the tram, and then the subway only runs through certain portions of it. So the train is actually much more popular, um, even though subway is faster. It's a little bit cheaper, kind of like Tokyo, but it's more limited on where it goes. So if you're trying to get out to, let's say, uh, Tene, 
you wouldn't take the subway because it doesn't go out there and the subway will get you. I guess if you're leaving from, from the actual TR station right there in the middle of Sao Paulo, you'd get maybe a quarter of the way by subway and then of course you got to jump off the subway uh, and then get on the train to get out there. Same thing if you're going uh, out towards Chitose. It's the same thing. You get about a little quarter of the way through the city and then you got to get off, go get on the train. So, Yes, I, I same guess each story. city has its unique flavor. Exactly. It depends on the city. Um, I would be able to advise when we're actually looking at um, uh, individual units, we'd be able to advise if that's um, more or less convenient based on the city. And then how are the actual property managers with, uh, all with, with kind of your plan of stuff? Um, they're all very Japanese in the sense that they'll never swindle you or run away with your uh, hard-earned cash sort of thing. Um, some of them are more professional than others. Some of them are more proactive than others. Um, the main problem we run into with them is that they're, when a unit becomes vacant, they're really terrified of making any proactive offers in case they end up being wrong and you're going to hate them forever kind of thing because, you know, for them to make a mistake is, is, is horrible. So we do have to push them a fair bit to... Uh, give suggestions on what to do next. So, for example, if a property is more difficult to populate because it's, you know, the wrong season or something happened in the location, then we'll have to push them to say, well, what do you suggest we do? Should we offer potential tenants one month free rent or should we lower the rent or should we furnish the place? We'll need to um, milk them for information based because they do know best. I mean, they do work their local, uh, their local towns and cities and they do know what to do. It's just really hard to get it out of them kind of thing. Um, but it has to be the high, high, high culture. Yes, but they're all—I mean—they're all—they're all very professional. Whether they're effective or not depends on the property manager. We have had to replace quite a few of them in the past, so that does happen. And the smaller the city is, the less of an option we have on that. Okay, um, so if you get a really good one in a city, it would potentially be advisable to try and work with them well and maybe pull them onto other projects. Or yeah, except they don't work out of the cities much. Uh, of the property managers we work with, there are two of them that are that have national offices uh, all around the country, but each office has completely different staffing and completely different uh, performance levels, so that doesn't really make much of a difference. And there's one uh, lady who's been doing a very good job. She's originally from Kyoto. She's covering Nagoya, Osaka, and recently she saw that Fukuoka is a good market, so she opened up an office here. So... We like to work with these kind of companies if we can, but they do tend to be rare in Japan. So we work with the best that we can find in each and every town. Um, we haven't been able to force them to expand much beyond that single lady, but um, I'm hoping that'll change. And are they open to discussing, you know, kind of the idea, the plans of of, of uh, kind of growing it out or, or kind of game planning on, okay, what are we going to do? This is what it's looked like this person is looking like they're on their last leg, we're probably going to have a vacancy coming up. Let's start planning for that um, kind of a thing, knowing that there are quite a bit of single elderly people. And let's face it, that's about the only thing that we all have certain in life is that we're all going to end up in the hole somewhere. Um, are they kind of proactive with working on that with you, kind of game planning, or is that gearing going more back towards what you were talking about? You need to kind of poke and prod them a little bit more. They are proactive. I mean, the good ones are proactive um, when there are payment issues. So they would say, okay, this guy's been late in payment uh, two or three months in a row because we only get their statement once a month. We wouldn't actually know when the payment came in. 
So they would be proactive in the sense that they would tell us that this guy looks like he might be making less money than he used to, or he might have a gambling problem, or who knows what he's got, but let's maybe send them a warning letter kind of thing. With the elderly, they don't tend to do that just because, I mean, if they start locking out the elderly tenants, then they're going to be losing half of the population, right? Right. Well, locking out is the, the last resort. We're talking more like, uh, you know, we know this gentleman, has, he was in the hospital for the last two months. He came back. He's back in the hospital. Looks like he might be on his last leg and uh, about to go into the uh, the next life. Yeah. Um, we do get notice of that, but there's not much we can do because of tenancy protection laws. Again, I mean, we can't kick people out because they're old. Oh no, no, no! I'm not talking about kicking them out. I'm talking about like, okay, we know he's about to die. What do you? What are? What are the trends kind of coming up in the neighborhood? What What are the kind of things that we're seeing with the vacancies? So we can start to get an idea of maybe, okay, what might we want to look at remodeling, or what we might we want to be thinking about, whereas rents are going down. Uh, staying about the same what are some of the new kind of nuances that are popping up you would get that information from us not from the property managers okay so that's where our relationship would come in we would discuss that and start working at and then you would transfer that to the property managers yes and even uh, even during the purchase phase i mean if we've seen some trends in particular cities that might have been attractive a year ago but are not super attractive now then we'll raise a flag just to let you know when you're looking at deals there that you might want to factor in more risk um, like Nagoya, for example, we've seen the population become a bit more, um, I don't know, blue collar, I suppose, but uh, again, rough around the edges, more payment issues than we've seen in other cities. Still, you know, Japan being Japan, it's not as frequent, but it does happen. So we'll let you know ahead of a purchase and we'll let you know when uh, we've got issues with the tenant, of course, but also when we're buying a property and we know what the tenant profile is like, we'll want to look at the average rents in the area. Um, someone that's lived in the same place for 20 years might be paying the rent that they paid um, uh, when salaries were higher or when rents were higher. So we'll let you know that the average rent, when, if and when this tenant moves out or croaks, the average rent is actually going to be 30, 40, 50% lower. And that's something that will, again, factor into the offer price that we make. So that sort of advice uh, you would get, but from us, not directly from the property managers. Okay, okay. That makes sense. Um, I guess, is there anything else that you feel is important that I should have asked, haven't asked? Um, now, I'm sure it'll come of, up as we start evaluating uh, potential deals, and we'll be able to point out stuff that we've spoken about or haven't spoken about. But if we're talking about market fundamentals, I guess we covered most of them. Okay. Um yeah, because I'm, I'm kind of running out of steam, run, you know, asking questions. <laughs> I'm starting to get more and more down to the, to the specifics of like, what am I looking for in a neighborhood? What am I looking for in this? And it's, so. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> I guess that's something uh, that really I you wouldn't see. In. Let's just start looking at actual spreadsheets and potential properties um, that fit within your budget. And then I'll be able to point out pros and cons of each of them. That'll probably prompt some more questions on your end as well. Sounds good to me. Okay, um, I might I might send somebody over your way as well. I got a friend of mine who who invests in Vegas quite a bit, who's looking to buy himself uh, a property, kind of a quarter of the year personal use, other time have it out on the market, kind of a thing. Um, Happy to. That'll give you both a year of uh, free management. Oh wow! I was that poking and prodding at him. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, so in. 
referring him over to you, should I give him, um, I guess, Pretty's contact information, say, hey, reach out to Pretty? Should I give him your contact information, say, reach out to you? Should I send him to the website, say, hey, log on to the web, you know, um, sign up on the website? How should uh, I go about e that? Either or, whichever way works, just make sure that he points out that he was referred by you, so we'll know to accredit it to your account. Okay, sounds good to me. I'll make sure uh, I let him know about that, because I know specifically for him, he's looking at Tokyo, his uh, home away from home, as he calls it. So he's maybe looking at something that he can use when he comes to visit as well? That's a wholly different class of properties, though. That, uh, yeah, he knows specifically what he's looking for, but I mean, as far as what he's told me, he's looking at something that maybe he can do some short-term rental, something with, uh, for the time that he's not there. He's, he said he spent, I don't know, quite a fair amount of time in Japan, so. Yeah, we got plenty of customers who do that as well. So we'll be directing him towards more central areas, nicer buildings, um, bit bigger on the property side. I mean, gaijins as a rule tend to uh, prefer to live in bigger properties, but also for short-term rentals, you want to make it slightly bigger than your typical closet. So we'll, we'll point him in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's something coming back to America. I had to get used to spend so much time in the Middle East kind of working and living in small cramped places with other people kind of being working different spots that uh, having a big place makes you feel a little uncomfortable sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, well, thank you so much, and uh, sorry about the little misconnect in the beginning. I don't know what it was. I was trying to get on with that, and couldn't figure out what my, uh, my username was. I was. No problem at all. So I'll, um, I'll send a follow-up email um, and CC Pretty and ask her to start forwarding stuff based on your criteria, and we'll take it from there. Okay, sounds good to me, and I think uh, I, I really like your idea, you know, about the whole Fukuoka, uh, Kobe, um, was it Yokohama kind of area? Um, looking at that, what you were talking about, somewhere that's a little bit more stable, has the potential for growth. Um, before we start jumping into the more exotic market, give me a little bit of a time to, I guess, figure out more of what my actual investor preference profile is, as it's kind of a discovery for yep. myself as well. <laughs> uh, we'll definitely start from those locations. Um, unless we get super lucky and we find like a really cheap property in Tokyo and Osaka, in which case we'll let you know. Um, but otherwise, yeah, those locations would be best, I think. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, and again, you know, just thank you guys for what you guys do. I mean, I think I first discovered you guys back in 2017. Uh, somewhere randomly, I was looking up properties in Sapporo. And then there was something that I clicked on that took me to some other property that was being listed and it just so happened to be your guys's uh i guess property what is it that was uh oh god i can't remember what the terminology was but it was like one of your preferred properties or, or property of the week kind of a thing and it was popped up and it was oh first podcast i was like oh okay well let's listen now it's this <laughs> <laughs> that means pretty's doing a good job i'll let her know thank you <laughs> yeah um well thank you i look forward to hearing back from you and you know moving forward we can Hopefully get a deal closed this year. Sounds and, good. Uh, start working on our relationship from there. Excellent. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. So there you have it. Super insightful questions. As I mentioned, I really like this guy and the way he approaches things uh, in preparation for his uh, first foreign into an unknown market like Japan. So I hope you also enjoyed it as much as I did. And while, as he mentions, his spouse is Japanese and he has already lived here in the past, so it doesn't sound like it would be too much of an issue for him to do that again in the future, 
Many of our listeners aren't living here yet and regularly contact us asking various questions about visas, setting up companies, branch offices, and so forth. And for this, we always refer them to our favorite immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener, who's also a sponsor of the podcast, Hidoshi Shimizu. So if you need to set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just get some up-to-date advice and consultation related to these topics, do feel free to reach out to Shimizu-san on info at h-shimizu-office.com or just pick up the phone and give him a call 092-732-7755 or if you're calling from out of Japan, that's plus 81-92-732-7755. He charges a surprisingly low fee for a first-time consultation, less than $50. So definitely worth getting his take on your particular circumstances whether they're business visa, investment plan, business plan related, whatever you've got that's somehow related to Japan, he's your guy. And if you've also got a product or a service or a project that you'd like more English speakers uh, in Japan or who are interested in Japan to know about, drop us a line and we'll share our sponsorship programs with you. Very affordable, just $20 or $30 monthly, which is our current uh, outreach to reach about 1,500 monthly listeners, steadily growing on an annual basis. Drop us a line, we'll sort you right out. All right, so that's it from us for today. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast, and we hope to have you with us again next time. Oh, yes, and of course, our clubhouse room. So every Wednesday from 1.30 p.m. Japan Standard Time, we're also co-moderating a global investment forum from 11 to 12 on that same day. So that's weekly, Wednesdays, Anywhere between 11 to about 3 o'clock Japan Standard Time, you can find me on a bunch of rooms talking to people. And that first room is not specifically related to Japan, but rather to all things global real estate, international property related. So do hit me up on Clubhouse if you're already a member. Ziv Nakajima again. There's only one of me out there with that mouthful of a name. Uh, click on follow when you find my profile, and that'll send you an alert uh, whenever I'm about to start or co-host a new room. And if you still don't have a Clubhouse membership, these are still invite only. So drop me a line and I'll try to send an invite your way. And lastly, and I really can't stress this enough, we would really, really appreciate it if you could share this episode and the podcast with your own networks. There should be at least one or two people on there that could also benefit from the topics that we cover here. And of course, if you would leave us a rating or a review on the iTunes store, we're also on Spotify and a bunch of other podcast directories, as well as on our host platform, Podigy. So your word of mouth is really what keeps us going with the podcast. So would love it if you could share the love, let people know what you think, or even just drop us a comment in the comment section of wherever you might have found this particular episode. So have a great day or night ahead, and until next time, yoshiku. Yoshiku.